0: Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and to worship you, and to be among the number that has been called out in this world, to be among among the number that you've called out of darkness into marvelous light, to be among that number even here in Kansas City that have been reconciled to you through. Jesus Christ to be among brethren and sisters tonight. I do pray that there will be an Amen, Father, in our hearts, that the Spirit will bear witness to the truth that is spoken, that our hearts would be assured where assurance is needed. I pray for this body of believers. I pray that you will meet with us. Lord, I pray that you'll provide for us that you'll provide for the ministries, the outreach. Father, that You will provide the unity and the fellowship, that it will come through the ministry of Your Holy Spirit among us. That is the only thing that sets us apart as a group. It is the presence of the living God among us through Your Spirit. And we must be different. There must be realities to that. Holiness. Fellowship. Peace conviction of sin, make those real to, to us, Father, because the Holy Spirit is real, because you are real, because you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time in your word together tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you all, and uh, good to be back uh, at. FCC, our home church, and uh, be with my fellow elders and fellow deacons and fellow congregation and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's great to be back with you. We had a great trip. Greg and I were in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan for a men's conference there. We spoke, and then I spoke Sunday morning at the church, and uh, really felt like the Lord, uh, Lord blessed us and met us there and really had an opportunity, I hope, to minister to those men. I want to thank uh, Jimmy, who uh, filled in for me last Wednesday night, which enabled me to prepare for that conference. I had to speak six times, so it um, was quite a bit of preparation involved. And so he spoke for me uh, last Wednesday night. Little did he know that he was setting the groundwork, if you will, the introduction for what I'm going to be doing. So I appreciate Jimmy doing that for me. Um, when we were there, uh, like I said, I spoke six times, and I was able to take some of the messages from the Book of Hebrews and. Uh, pressed upon them uh, the need for perseverance and some precious gospel exhortations from the book of Hebrews, and uh, it, it was it was a very uh, encouraging time for me and I, I hope for them as well. The genuine genuine group of, of guys up there, in many ways, as uh, I spoke at the church Sunday morning, it probably resembles Faith Community Church more than any other church I've ever been in. Just the worship style and the people and the fellowship so that was a blessing to to see. I think Greg and I both came away with a heart for men's ministry, seeing these men come together and share and being ministered to around the word and encourage one another. It was a really neat. You've probably heard me say before that I'll never wear one of those really cool looking mics and I had to wear one of those really cool looking mics. I was really not going I was almost tempted to say don't you have another one but it ended up being a fiasco because they You have to run it through your coat, and then it goes down your back, and then it's in your pocket, and then it comes around your neck, and then it's, you know, here on the side of the road. And, you know, you feel like it's like a gnat's always there, so you're always looking at it. But every time I raised my hand, it pulled it up against my chin, so I'd be preaching, and I'd try to gently, you know, pull it away, and then if I stuck my hand in my pocket, it yanked it from behind. I fought that the entire service, I kid you not, and so I don't ever want one of those crazy things, but... uh, I had to swallow my words and wear the cool mic. It was a blessing for me to have Greg go. He was a real encouragement, not only to me, but I think to many of the men there. I want to thank Ken Heiser for filling in for me on Sunday, and I've heard a number of people say that he was a real blessing with his faithfulness and his passion for the Word, so I, I am so delighted to hear that uh, the pulpit was well covered. Does anybody know where the word pastor comes from? Anybody know how that came about in the English language? Anybody brave enough that wants to make a guess? Very good. It's a Latin word for shepherd. And uh so, you know, we use it totally out like a pastor is a guy who wears a suit and stands behind a pulpit, but that's not the word. The word is Latin for a shepherd. And that's why we call elders shepherds of the flock. They're a they're a shepherd. They're a, they take care of sheep, and a pastor has an enormous responsibility to feed and care for the flock of God, to feed his sheep, and one of the most important responsibilities that a shepherd has, if you think about a real shepherd now, is that he has to lead sheep to green pastures and fresh water. That's his job, because sheep don't naturally do that. They don't find... if you. I've heard people say that sheep are some of the most stupid animals on the face of the earth. And if you put them in a pasture, they will ruin the pasture. They'll just strip it bare. They need someone, and they lead them around to fresh pastures, and then a couple of days we need to move them to fresh pastures, lead them to water. And that's the metaphor that the Lord uses for the pastor in the local church, uh, church, that you're leading a bunch of really dumb people, and no, that's not it at all. I'm kidding. But you have to lead the flock to green pastures of God's word. That's your responsibility. They are out in the world. they are working. They're, they're being tried and tempted, and they are to come and be fed green pastures and fresh water. They're to be tended and cared for in that regard. That's, a, that's an incredible responsibility that means you don't want leftovers. Means you don't want, you know, something that's just, you could get in a commentary, but green pastures. What a metaphor to use for the responsibilities of the pastors. It's a very powerful metaphor for me, and it's really the commission of the pastor, and that's my burden. It's to teach the whole counsel of God. This is our pasture, and to open it up, and when we open it up, it is fresh, it is It is reviving, it is renewing, it is providing nourishment spiritually to us. And that's a a serious responsibility. And uh, by opening up this book and by preaching through the whole counsel of God, I believe we are led and will be led into green pastures because, you know, I've been preaching now to you guys for 14 years. And... um, My stories are going to get old. If you've been here long, if you, oh, yeah, I heard that one. I've heard that one. Because I'm a very limited creature. I I only have so many experiences. I don't have very many good jokes. I don't have a lot of great stories. And if we're not being led consistently into green pastures, I'm wasting your time. And that is a burden to me. It's a burden to Jim and to, I think, to, to all the elders. As we come, we want to meet with the living God here. We want to meet and open up His Word and be fed. And I think it's a challenge to pastors because, you know, if I always stay on my hobby horse, that's like sheep just staying on one particular pasture. And, you know, after a while, you've beat it and there's no more beating. There's nothing there. You need to move on. And as pastors, we are to teach not just the things that we're, we like and that we're excited about, but we're to teach the whole counsel of God. And I think about my own experiences, how often in my preaching, and this is, this is a danger. You know, I preach from my experience. Right now, I've got a son in college, and so I have all these child care issues and teenagers in the home. And I'm sure that comes across in my stories. But what about grandparents? Am I able to relate to people that don't have children in the home? What if, you know, I'm married. I, my whole life is about being married. Am I able to relate and preach to singles? to divorced. That is why a a vibrant, full ministry of the Word of God is so important because people's needs are different and it can't just be about my limited experiences. And I was thinking again that some of you in this room, not, not all of you, but some of you in this room, this is the only church you've ever been to since you've been saved. This is it. And you have got to be provided green pastures. It's, just, it's an enormous responsibility. It's a mandate for green pastures. So I would ask you, as your pastor, as your shepherd, to pray in that regard. We have a group of ladies, and I had intended to talk to them before, but pray that the ministry of the Word is leading God's people into green pastures week after week. Um, it's one of the reasons why I preach through books, so it forces me to deal with topics that are outside of my experience it's one of the needs, why we have a plurality of pastors, why we have other people that can teach the Bible, not just one person. But all those things are um, at play. It's very interesting that while it's my responsibility to lead us in the green pastures, it um, doesn't mean that every Sunday or every Wednesday it should be new and novel, something new we never heard about or something novel. A sheep are... They're led into green pastures. It's still grass. It's just fresh grass. And that's really the responsibility of the pastor. It's not new. It's not novel. But it better be fresh. It better be green. It better be nutritious. So we have this mandate to lead to green pastures, fresh pastures. But we also have this mandate from the Apostle Paul, First Corinthians chapter 15, stand in the gospel. Isn't that paradoxical? Go into green pastures fresh, but stand in the gospel. You never leave the gospel, which tells me the pastures of the gospel is a very big field and encompasses all of life. So whatever we're talking about, if it isn't rooted in and brought back to the gospel, we've got a problem. And that's one of the problems in Christianity today in the church today. We preach law, law, duty, duty, duty without gospel, and people are overwhelmed and discouraged and depressed and feel like they can't measure up. We stand in the gospel. We never get out of the gospel. It's a rich pastor. Well, on Wednesday nights, it's been my intention to try to add some diversity to our diet. Usually, you know, on Sunday mornings, we go through a book, sometimes large books, like the Gospel of John, like the letter of Hebrews. We're, we're systematically going through it, and I've intentionally designed that Wednesday nights will be something different. Oftentimes, it's topical, and I do that because I want a variety in our diet Actually, C.H. Spurgeon, the man that many of us admire, he, I'll say disdained, did not believe in preaching through a book systematically. He said things like, I can't imagine anything more boring than preaching through the same book, you know, over a year or time. And, I, you know, I obviously disagree with Spurgeon, but that is a danger where we wear people out in a book. And so, Wednesday nights, I try to change things up and to be a little different. And so, some of the and I've gotten some great suggestions, some, some topics we're going to be working on um, since we're dealing with faith and uh, living on the Word of God from the book of Hebrews. Someone suggested, and it was a great suggestion, you know, we're supposed to live on the Word of God. We're supposed to live by the promises of God. Well, what are those promises? What are the promises of God that we're living on? What are the promises of God you get up in the morning and you're claiming? That's a great study, and I've already been blessed by working through some of these key promises of God that we live on every day. Um, another issue that was brought up to me, and I've just been thinking about it, and I know it's been an issue for a number of you in this church, and it, I don't know how else to call it, but just end-of-life issues. We're growing older as a nation, as a, as a population. Uh, many of us sometimes are going to have parents that are going to be in a nursing home or in our homes, and we're going to be taking care of them, and you know, what do you do when, when your parent, your your mother, or you know, is terminally ill? And there's this is, this is a whole field. The technology has brought so many questions. Do you do everything possible to keep them alive? Do you? So that's that's a big issue, and I think that's something that we need to address as a church. So I'm going to be working on that. Um, I've been. Asked to consider even revisiting the will of God series. How do you determine the will of God, which is really important? Well, over the next several weeks, um, we're going to be doing a series of messages um, over a very important subject, a very important subject, and that is over the biblical doctrine of assurance, assurance of one's salvation. I, I really believe it's one of the most important issues facing the church today. I can say I've spent 14 years of my ministry, and you've heard me say this many times, warning against the dangers of saying the sinner's prayer and counting on that for your salvation. Um, I've been constantly, I, I think, critiquing spurious conversion experiences, examining ourselves, but... There comes a time when we also need to look at the other side of the coin and look at the assurance that a believer does have. Eternal security is a precious possession of the believer. Even though there are many people who, uh, who may have a false sense of assurance, it should not rob the genuine believer of their assurance. You consider the fact that over the last... Number of months, we've been going through some of the most significant warning passages in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, where we have encountered very serious warnings where, where believers are challenged in their faith. And these warnings that are given, there are five of them in the book of Hebrews. We've covered, all, we've covered four of them. The fifth will be in just a few chapters, chapter 12. But every one of those warnings follow a statement of impending doom if you do not heed the warning. And they're designed to stir us up. They're designed to examine our faith. And they're designed to keep us holding fast to Christ. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we are being exhorted to persevere, to endure. But, you know, if you just had a constant steady diet of that, you may conclude, well, my assurance is based on my ability to hold on to Christ. Ultimately, my assurance is up to me. It's up to me keeping myself. And that's a very dangerous thought. It's a very discouraging thought for me. That if my assurance is based on me, I'm in trouble. And that's why I believe the doctrine of assurance is so important. The importance of this doctrine came home to me this past week. A couple of incidents happened this past week that uh, just reaffirmed that this is exactly what I need to be doing at this time. I mentioned, you know, that I was at the men's conference, and uh, I, I told them I was giving them the, uh, the bronze package. Uh, they, they couldn't afford the gold package, because that's going all the way through the book of Hebrews, and that takes a long time. They couldn't afford that. But I gave them the bronze package, which was two warnings and two gospel exhortations. So that was the, what they were going to get, is two warnings, uh, the danger of drifting, and the danger of unbelief, and then two gracious exhortations about running to Jesus Christ, our sympathetic High Priest. And if I was teaching these men, and you know, they they really received the the warnings there, the danger that we have drifting, and they, that resonated with them. They, many of them came and said, "Man, it's like you were talking to me. I know I've been drifting, the dangers of unbelief, and we, our hearts becoming hard and insensitive to to God and the things of God." But when I got to the to the, the grace part. When I got to the gospel part, I mean these guys they just lit up. They just got they just got emotional. They got excited. I mean they were hungry for the gospel. And I realized that, you know, in church so often we preach duty, duty, duty. This is you must do this. You know, if the Christians do this and you have the law, law. But we forget that we have a gospel. We forget that we have grace. We forget that there's a Christ who saves sinners. And so it really impressed upon me the importance of the need for, for Gospels. And uh, if it's always warnings, that can really destroy a, a Christian life. Then there was another incident that happened rather recently, which is a pretty interesting situation. But uh, I had a what I call a truncated dialogue with some individuals who um, listened to one of my messages on Sermon Audio and they're from like Eastern Canada and got this email from them and they had listened to the message on the dangers of apostasy and basically said, you know, it was a great sermon and, uh, you know, went on and on about the dangers of apostasy and this once saved, always saved and wanted me to do a teleconference with their church on this danger of apostasy and so uh, b- before Before I agreed to it, I thought, there was just some things in the email that are just, the way they phrased some things, I thought, I need to make some clarification. So I wrote back and said, you know, I'd be happy to visit with your church, but I want to clarify some things. I said, I do not believe that a true believer could ever fall away from the faith. That we, God's elect, are sure and they will persevere. And, you know, I just went through and stated it. Well, Oh, boy. I got this letter back, you know, and it was that is an apostate doctrine and true believers can lose their salvation and blah, blah, you know, going on and on. And the last email I had from him said, because I, I said, I just want to make sure we're on the same page before I address your congregation here. And he ended, we are not on the same page, so you will certainly not be addressing the congregation here. That's out of the question. You are in error. You need to study more. We have nothing further to discuss. So that's how that email went. And uh, and I obliged him, and uh, so I'm not going to dialogue any farther with him. But. I'll be honest with you. I have a burden for that congregation in eastern Canada now. That Whether they take that sermon or not, but to go to a body of believers and take away assurance, my heart bleeds for them. I wish I could address that congregation. Because... To live under that reality that a true believer could fall away and be lost. Because ultimately, if that's true, it's up to me and you. That's ultimately what it is. So then, that's the message. You could fall away, so you better in this law. One of the books that I highly recommend, and I will basically be using it somewhat as a pattern, is a book we've had in our bookstore, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian?, what the Bible Says About Assurance of Salvation is written by Don Whitney. I would highly encourage you, if you have not read it, to get this book. Um, I believe Don deals with it in a very pastoral way. I remember my dad said that when he read this, he said this is the best book that's ever been written on the subject. And so um, it's a short read. It's very readable. It's it's not real deep, very practical. But um, I would encourage you to get that book if you haven't read that. But we will be using it somewhat as our outline as we move through this. There are, and this is kind of just an introduction, there are two extremes that we have to avoid. And this is, MacArthur brought this up in the, in the uh, foreword of this book. There are two extremes that we as a church, as believers, must avoid. And the first extreme is an assurance that comes too easily. It is a shallow false assurance that uh, MacArthur calls, that really produces a fatal spiritual apathy. It is more not assurance of salvation, it's just assumption of salvation. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. It is careless. And you've heard me talk about this, and I feel like I've spent 14 years dealing with this extreme that is so prevalent in the church today. Now those men that contacted me from Canada, you know, I, I vehemently disagree with them and would love to dialogue with them, and I would lay down my life for the doctrine of assurance, but I I understand, I think, some way, where they're coming from. They are living, Canada, maybe even worse than America, but they are living in a nation where everybody assumes they're Christian, and everybody's going to heaven, and they are struggling with this extreme that they see in their nation of careless assumption of assurance. And I spent 14 years trying to shake that and rattle that because it needs to be shaken and it needs to be rattled. Uh, Don Whitney brings up a statistic from Barna. Barna has a book out called What Americans Believe. And in that book... Did you know that ninety nine percent of Americans have assurance of their salvation? People were asked, Barna asked, how or if you were to die today, you would not go to heaven?" How many of you would say yes or no to that? Did you know that ninety nine percent of the people that responded to that question said, I'd go to heaven. 99%. That means only one out of a 100 Americans believe they're lost. 1%. That's a huge problem. And I believe that's one of the reasons why I've spent 14 years so many times trying to rattle people's assumptions. False assurances. It is one of the major issues of our day. And any faithful ministry of the Word is going to have to challenge that. And Jesus challenges it. But there's another extreme. MacArthur calls it a chronic uncertainty that leads to a preoccupation with oneself, one's fears, and one's failings. I would call it just intense navel-gazing. You're just, oh me, look at me, I'm so bad. Wretched me, oh... And you're always just, your head's down and, you know, you can never measure up and you just, whoa, whoa, whoa. I will tell you straight out that if your eyes are looking at yourself, you will never have assurance. But we're not told to look to ourselves for assurance, are we? Who are we told to look to for assurance? We are told to look to Jesus Christ. And so there is that issue. I have known people... I remember one young man, I still see him occasionally. He was almost mentally unbalanced because he could not get assurance of his salvation. I went around Robinson's barn I don't know how many times. Robinson's barn. I don't know where that came from. Is that the same? Around the barn. I don't know. But we went around and around and around and around. It might have been Robin Hood's barn. It might not. But we just went around it a bunch of times. But he wouldn't get... Nothing was happening. I could not convince him from Scripture that security of the believer was a real and precious thing. And I feared for his mental stability, in all honesty. So how can we be sure... That we are a Christian, shouldn't it give us pause if we live in a nation when 99% of them believe they're going to go to heaven? Shouldn't we stop and think? You know, there's no way 99% of Americans are going to heaven. The life that they're living, have I been affected by this culture? Have I been deceived? And if they're not going to heaven, and if they can't be sure, how can I be sure? I think it's a legitimate question. Well, Jimmy didn't know it, but he did a great introduction for me last Wednesday night because his text was from 1 Peter, that we are kept by the power of God through faith. We are kept by the power of God through faith. That's a wonderful statement, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 there. Kept by the power of God. But I'm kind of the skeptic. I'm, I'm the one that questions. And I see that truth in there. But how do I know that I'm the one that's going to be kept by the power of God through faith? How, how do I know? It's great that God keeps, but am I being kept? And that's what I want, to, want us to explore. How can I be sure that I am the one being kept by the power of God? Well, two things become very clear when you look at the Bible about this issue. Very clear. The first is this, that in the Bible, Jesus in particular warns against self-deception in this area. You know, I could take you to Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, they were, they were deceived. They deceived themselves. Jesus warns against that. There's no doubt about that. Jesus warns against self-deception in this area, and if you think about it, if you are deceived in the area of assurance, there is no greater deception. What a terrifying deception. Because if you're deceived, you don't know it's a lie. If you're deceived, you don't even know you're lost. You think you're saved. You're deceived. The wool's been pulled over your eyes. That's a terrible self-deception. So there's a warning against self-deception. But the second thing, as you look at the Bible, the Bible is equally clear, as is Jesus, that our Lord wants every believer to enjoy the full assurance of their salvation. Isn't that interesting? On one hand, there is the warning against self-deception. But as you look at the pages of Scripture, you find very clearly that God intends His people to have a rest and an assurance of their salvation. I want us to look tonight, just very briefly, three passages of scripture, and that's really what I'm going to focus on. That indicate very strongly that God desires that it is God's normative standard for believers to have assurance of their salvation. It may not be normal. But it is the standard we should have assurance of our salvation. Look at First John chapter five, verse thirteen. When we open the pages of the Bible, you know what we learn? We learn that there is a whole book in the New Testament that was written so that people might have assurance of their salvation. That's what the Apostle John said in First John five. Verse 13. He sums up his letter saying, verse 13 of chapter 5, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. I'd love to ask those pastors in Canada. What does this mean if a believer isn't supposed to know that they're a believer or not, assured of their salvation or not? I have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. You see the word know there? Some of you that are familiar with Greek, you've heard of gnosko and epigenosko. That's not the word that's used here. It's oida. But it's not so much the word, but it is the tense that is used. Do you remember when we were those of you that were with us back in the Gospel of John, John, when Jesus was on the cross and he gave up his spirit and it said he said it is finished. Tetelestai. Do you remember that message on Tetelestai? It's a Greek word and it's a perfect in Greek. A perfect is a rare word and it's it is finished. You see the is? That's present tense. But finished is past tense. That kind of describes a perfect. It's something that has happened in the past that has ongoing ramifications. It is finished. It is, the work of redemption is done and it is still done. There is nothing more to add to the work of redemption. It's in the perfect. And one Greek grammar said New Testament writers do not use the perfect haphazardly. When they use a perfect, they're using it for a very special re- reason. Well, when he says, I've written these things so that you may know, Oida, and he writes it in the perfect. He is talking here about a definitive knowledge that you come to know and continue to know that you are or have eternal life. It is a decisive knowledge it is to know for certainty that you have eternal life turn back just a few pages the second peter the second passage we're going to look at second peter chapter 1 verse 10 we will find from this passage that the lord actually commands us To pursue assurance of our salvation. He commands it. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. In the Greek, that is an imperative. Be diligent. It's a command to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Make certain your calling and election. Make certain of it. The word, be all the more diligent, spudazo in the Greek, you know what it means? To hasten, to hurry, to be zealous, to be eager, to make every effort. Make every effort to make sure you're calling an election. That it is certain that it is sure. Make every effort. Don't rest. If you are unsure about your salvation, then you need to spudazo. You, need to, you better hurry up. You better be very zealous about this. You get, better be eager in making certain about your calling and election. Because I'll tell you what happens is people get concerned about it and then they don't do anything about it and they're not diligent about it and a spiritual apathy sets in. And a spiritual apathy is about as dangerous as self-deception. Because if you no longer care if you're lost or not, you might as well be deceived that you are lost. Don't rest until you're sure. You know, it's pretty amazing how this command to not rest, to be, at, to be diligent, to make haste, to make certain about your calling, how it runs completely counter to Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism in the Council of Trent says, If anyone saith that a man who is born again and justified is bound to faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate, let him be anathema. Did you know that? Did you know that according to Roman Catholic theology, if you believe and you have assurance of your salvation you are actually accursed damned this is important this is very important hebrews 6:11 we looked at this passage and it's interesting because in hebrews chapter 6 we have one of the sternest most austere severe warnings in all of the bible i won't read it again but it's found in chapter 6 verses 4 through 6, about the danger of apostatizing, the danger of falling away. But after this severe warning, look what the pastoral author says in verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Even though he gave this incredibly severe warning, he says, we desire, and this is a very strong desire. It is the same word that is used for coveting a man's gold or silver. It's the same word used for lust. We earnestly desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. It sounds very similar to what Peter says. Make every effort. Be diligent to make your calling and election certain or sure. In his book on how can I be sure I'm a Christian, the first chapter opens up with a very simple story that I just want to share with you. In 1858, the steamship Austria caught fire and sank in the Atlantic Ocean, killing 400 people. One survivor told how he and five Christian friends stood between the fire behind them and the water before them. They agreed that at the very end, they would leap from the sinking ship together. When the time arrived, they joined hands, looked at each other, and just before jumping into the cold waters of the Atlantic, express their confidence that in just a few moments, they would all meet in heaven. Do you have that confidence? That you face death. You're staring it right in the eye. And have the confidence that you're about to leap into eternity in heaven. That is a precious confidence Don Whitney, at the end, goes back to that illustration. On the day you will stand, one day you will stand on the edge of death, just as those six men on the Austria did. When your turn comes to jump into eternity, where will you land? Do you have the assurance that you will land in heaven? God is willing for all of his children to have that assurance. Are you willing to pursue it? And that's what we're going to pursue the next few weeks. We're going to talk next week about doubt. Doubt even in the life of a believer. We're going to deal with the question, is it possible to doubt and still be a believer? Because some people will look, remember the definition that we... This is Hebrew faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Is it possible to have saving faith and yet not really be sure about your eternal security? That's an important question for us to look at and look at what the Scripture has to say about. It's interesting. Whitney says it's normal for non-Christians to have a false assurance of salvation. It's normal for 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 uh, unbelievers to have a false assurance of salvation. What do they base it on? Oftentimes their work, their deeds. I was baptized. I did this. Matthew 7, when Jesus causes those to depart from him, says, I never knew you. And they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast up demons? It's all in what we did, what we did. There's many people today that base their assurance just like those people. I yeah, I went to church. I did this. I did that. That's not on the basis of our assurance. But what is the basis of our assurance? If it's not on, I did this and I did that. Those are the questions we're going to probe. And I trust that if you are not assured of your salvation, that you will be diligent to pursue this subject matter and to be sure. Because I can tell you, One of the most precious doctrines in the world to me. I can't imagine not having assurance of my salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and these commands from Scripture that make it very clear that it is Your intention that Your children have assurance of their salvation. It is commanded. Be diligent to make sure You're calling an election. And yet, Lord, maybe even in this assembly, There are many that may be under self-deception or perhaps even worse, spiritual apathy. They just don't care. Father, may you, by the gracious ministry of your Holy Spirit, work in these situations and bless your word for the comfort and encouragement of your people. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.